Welcome to Exhale Bible Discovery. Each week, we'll take a deep dive into the Bible, going line by line and chapter by chapter to discover the truths that God has for us in His Word. Hello, everyone. Well, in our last session from Chapter 10, we were given a pause, a little break before the final trumpet blast. And most of this lesson continues with this pause with another amazingly exciting lesson. Chapter 10 hopefully emboldened you as a believer of your responsibility in these final days. None of us gets a get out of jail free card. It's up to each of us to get busy for the kingdom. And imagine if every believer truly did take up the cross daily as we are all instructed. I believe we wouldn't be experiencing a lot of what is going on in our world if all believers were busy with the Great Commission. Well, let's get going right into chapter 11 of Revelation. Oh my word, such an exciting chapter. Got it broken down into the two witnesses, verses 1 through 14, in the second section. We're moving right into the seventh trumpet, eleven fifteen through 19. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for what you do, how you open this word to us. Open these hearts and thank you. Thank you, Father. Thank you for the book of Revelation. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, the first part of chapter 11. Yeah, it seems very, very strange as there is this inserted event that takes place just before the final seventh trumpet sounds. Verse 1, John seeing another vision, it says, I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar with its worshipers. How strange does this sound as chapter 11 opens with a reference to a measurement. John is given something and instructed to do a very specific thing. And as we saw at the end of chapter 10, where John was told to do something, he is told to go and now measure the temple and the altar with the worshipers. And again, when you're told something by God, it's not a request. It's a specific command. Well, as a realtor, I saw this passage with renewed interest. Before you buy land, we have it measured or surveyed to ensure that we know exactly what it is we are purchasing. Likewise, with a home on the property, the home is measured to make sure everyone knows the size of the home and if it's priced fairly. In my line of work, the measurement part of a deal is extremely important. So how wonderful that John is now told to measure God's most important treasure. That's us, you guys, his people. It really has nothing to do with a literal building, as we know that once Christ died for us, we became the temple. You all know one of my favorite verses comes from 1 Corinthians 19 through 20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own, for you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. 
God has always desired to dwell amongst his people. The literal tabernacle and then temple from the Old Testaments were places where God could dwell among us. Exodus 25.8 Let them construct a sanctuary for me that I may dwell among them. So the opening verse here in chapter 11 points to the temple with its worshipers. It's very important that we see that part with its worshipers because it's saying God's including all of us, his followers in this passage. And right now, as this final trumpet blasts, he's once again reassuring believers, you guys, I've got you. You are part of my temple. We are his church. And this measuring demonstrates how treasured and important we are to him. He knows every one of his flock. He loves us, protects us, and includes us. What a beautiful reminder as we go into this final trumpet. So then in verse 2, but exclude the outer court. Do not measure it because it has been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months. John is given the second part of this directive, and that is to exclude the outer courts, not to measure it because it belongs to the Gentiles. Well, Gentiles in this context is in reference to those who are outside of God's family. And so people who deny God, they're exiled from his temple. They don't wish to be with God. That's their choice. So he is clearly instructing that because they have chosen to deny and defy him, they're not going to be under this umbrella of care. And I also found this very interesting tidbit of information. When the Romans conquered Jerusalem in AD 70, they destroyed the city so completely that the foundations of the old temple are not easily found. Most have long assumed that the Dome of the Rock shrine, which is a Muslim temple, stands on the place of the old temple. They really thought they'd be mocking God with this. But new research gives some evidence that the temple may have stood to the north where the Dome of the Rock Shrine is today, and that if the temple were to be rebuilt at its old original place, guess what? The Dome of the Rock would be in its outer courts. What? (laughs) And if this is the case, then it would explain why Angel would tell John to leave out outside of the temple. Don't measure it. It's the Gentiles. They don't care about me. So anyway, I wanted to insert that. I thought it was really, really interesting. You know, of course, God's the one who knows. So the last part of this verse says, they will trample on the holy city for 42 months. And to trample implies complete insult and destruction. And the 42 months equals three and a half years. However, we've got to, got to, got to remember that this book is a vision filled with symbolism. We've already seen it over and over and over again. And we know that in AD 70, when this entire temple was destroyed, it was prophesied. It was told this was going to happen. And now it's God's turn to trample on their ideologies, their worship of false idols, and their way of life that doesn't include him. Very, very appropriate. 
Verse 3, And I will appoint my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days, clothed in sackcloth. Now, here's this references to his two witnesses. And you all know, there are a gazillion theories out there about who these two people were. Many have spent so many countless hours trying to research and identify who these two people are. But many, many also believe that it's imagery, okay? And it's not really a literal two people, but perhaps it's a reference to the witnesses being God's word and God's church. It makes a lot of sense. So hang with me as we go into this. No doubt, God's word has endured over time. And now, after Christ, his death and his resurrection, his church has prophesied and preached his word since that time. For the wording to say they were in sackcloth, that demonstrates the continued persecution of God's people and his word. And we're experiencing it like never before. We certainly cannot rule out two literal witnesses who a lot believe could be Elijah and Moses, and we could go on a really long rabbit trail here. But the importance of this verse is to remind us that God has appointed each of us who claim to follow him, that we are to be his witnesses. It is not the job for someone else. So as we come to verse four, we need to revisit the lampstands that we learned earlier in Revelation 1-2. The lampstands represent the seven churches. And verse 4 says, There are two olive trees and the two lampstands, and they stand before the Lord of the earth. Now, in John's vision, the two olive trees are included. In the beginning of Revelation, we didn't see anything about olive trees. But much has been written about olive trees. And as believers, we know the symbolism of being grafted into the kingdom as Gentiles, meaning those not born of Jewish descent or those outside of God's true family are brought into the kingdom when they accept Jesus, the true vine. And also, we know olive oil comes from this tree and that oil is needed to keep the lamp stands burning. Therefore, do you see the rich symbolism of the church and of the people of the church? Because an empty church or an empty lamp stand does no good without fuel. An empty church is no good without people doing the work of that church. The light can only shine when the oil in the lamp is full and plentiful. And I love this perfect pointing of those of us who are working for the kingdom. Y'all, we provide the needed oil to keep the church alive and bright. It is so richly beautiful and symbolic here. Next, verse 5 tells us what happens to those who come against God's church and his word. And clearly, this shows the power of God's word. It has the power to devour and kill. I love this verse in Jeremiah 23, 29 through 30. Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer, which shatters a rock? Therefore, behold, I am against the prophets, declares the Lord, who steal my words from each other. Here are 11 things. Here we are in chapter 11. 
And there's 11 things that we can claim that the power of God's word can do. It has the power to reveal. Genesis 1 through 2, creation is revealed. It has the power to refute. 2 Timothy 3.16, God's word is irrefutable. The truth of what is moral and what is not. Power of the word can reproduce. Luke 8 verse 11, the word of God causes growth. It has the power to redirect. 1 Peter 2.25, lives are changed because of the word. It has the power to revive. Psalm 138.7, God's word strengthens us in our time of need. It has the power to reward. Hebrews 11.6, believers are rewarded with eternity. Readiness, Luke 12.40, the word prepares believers. Repentance, Acts 2.37-38, believers receive repentance. The power of resurrection, 1 Corinthians 1.18, we are saved from death. Regeneration, Romans 8.13, we are made alive by the word of God. We become new creatures. And then it has the power of rejoicing. Philippians 4.4, we have the power of the word to fully rejoice. Isn't that awesome? Verse 5, if anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouth and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. So my friends, rest in the fact that as a witness of Christ, those who try to harm you, they will ultimately be destroyed. You may not see the end result, but know that if those who persecute you for your faith in Christ, if they do not turn and repent from their ways, they will be devoured by Satan. That is a promise. Verse 6 says, They have power to shut up the heavens so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying. And they have power to turn the waters into blood and strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Verse 6 continues to impress upon believers that the power of God's word and the power of God is what we are undergirded with, you guys. The church, believers, and individuals do not have our own power to stand against the enemy. Rather, we have his power in and through us. And in this verse, we are reminded how God used mere men to show his great power on earth. Here's a couple of examples. James 5, 17 through 18. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain and the earth produced its fruit. Then in Exodus, Moses was given powers to bring about plagues, destruction, and he turned the water to blood in the Nile. So the they in these verses is talking to you and I as believers. We have the power of the Holy Spirit as promised by Christ himself. Acts 1.8 But you shall, you guys, let me read that again. But you shall. That is a promise. It's not maybe or if. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Well, do you believe in this power? And are you calling it forth in your life? It's an important question. And as we arrive at verse 7, many people become despondent over this text because at first glance, 
verse 7 is pretty depressing. It says, Now when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them, overpower, and kill them. And so let's take it apart a bit in order to see the true meaning. Here we are in the last chapter of the Bible. We're learning about end times. And we know that there will be a time when things on this earth no longer remain. Therefore, when it says, when they have finished their testimony, y'all, this tells us that there's going to come a time when the church and its believers have completed their mission on earth. And the beast we know is Satan, who has been roaming this earth, wreaking havoc on our lives since the fall in the garden. And now, here at the end times, when the church is removed, Satan has free reign to destroy. And many believe that this verse is pointing to the rapture or God's removal of his church. And then boom, Satan believes, buddy, I am the victorious. I'm the winner. We shall see because we know how this book ends and we know who the winner is. So verse eight, their bodies will lie in the public square of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, which is also where the Lord was crucified. Again, if we continue to seek these passages symbolically, we do not have to categorically believe that this means there are two literal men rotting in the street dead. It could be, as we have dug into the verses, but the symbolism here regarding the church and God's word makes complete sense. So as we continue to see God's word today being trampled on, his moral laws mocked, his creation turned into a laughing spectacle, yeah, it's easy to see how the death of the church today and of the Bible will be dead when the world is without Christians and God's pulled his hand off of it. They'd love that. This is what many are clamoring for day by day. We've already seen the Ten Commandments being removed from our courthouses. School prayer has been pulled out. And now the whole politically correct jargon is even preventing many preachers to be bold. It's causing them to lay low in the pulpit. As our world continues on this path to exclude God, Christ, and anything they represent, it is easy to see Bibles being piled up, Christian relics, whatever it is, churches burned down, and for people to watch from the sidelines and even cheer, which takes us to verse 9. For three and a half days, some from every tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. Well, to look at that verse and understand it, for centuries we have evidence that many, many Christians have been martyred and slain due to their belief in Christ, as they were killed more often than not throughout history, their bodies were left for others to gaze upon, mock, spit upon, and celebrate. When an unbelieving world thinks that Christianity is dead, you better believe there's going to be a celebration. Can you imagine the desecration of our now standing churches, historical Christian relics and places? They're going to do whatever they can to tear them down, mar them, and turn them into their own places of self-worship. Don't get caught up in the three and a half days as again, this is pointing to the fact that this will only be for a time because God isn't finished 
even though many are going to be falsely led to believe they have won. Also, worldwide, the Christian influence is gone, leaving nothing but an immoral-less society making up their own moral code. We are living through a time when the reality of a new world order, a one-world religion, and a genderless society is rearing its ugly head. Step by step, we are heading into a time where old-fashioned doctrines such as Christianity, the family, marriage, etc. are being edged out and replaced with a milk-toast ideology. The dead bodies represent the once-living Word and God's fully alive church. And the lampstands, y'all, they're losing their brightness each day that we allow God's word to be watered down and for God's message to be more pleasing and less offensive to others. This is happening right now. And why this last chapter of the Bible is calling upon believers to wake up and to be very blunt, to wake the hell up. Verse 10, the inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. And what is so interesting about this verse is how it mocks what we now celebrate as Christmas. And haven't we seen how this beautiful celebration of our Lord's birth has turned into a glitzy, Santa-ridden celebration? Even our school calendars say winter break rather than Christmas holiday. And I found it more and more difficult to find Christmas cards that even say Merry Christmas. So what better way to mock our most celebrated season with a replaced celebration of the demise of Christianity? These people will think they have the last laugh as they gloat and celebrate what they believe is the end of Christ. The church is in need of great revival. And so I looked up the word revive, and it means to restore to life or consciousness, to regain life, consciousness, or strength. Our church is falling asleep and has been asleep and needs to be awakened. We've got to pray diligently for our pastors to begin receiving a strengthening in their spirit to preach the word of God with power and conviction and without the worrying of offending those who don't like to hear the truth. Should we continue down this path of apathy, comfort in our own little pews? This is where things are headed. But as we've discussed through this book of Revelation thus far, there is still time. This means We all must get busy to do God's business right now. You guys, chapter 11 is the absolute culmination of this call right here in the middle of this last book of the Bible. And I find it no mistake that many people are seeing the numbers 11 or 11 or some variation of this. I know I have since the year 2014. And a lot of people try to make, oh, that's ooey scary. But hey, God's the one who he reaches his people however he wants. And he has a whole book in the Bible called Numbers. (laughs) So when God showed me, though, the importance of Revelation 11, 11, I almost fell out of my chair. 
And no, it is not new agey numerology. God loves numbers. We've seen it throughout the book of Revelation, how important numbers are. And they point to very specific messages. So no doubt, God can reach his people in this digital age with messages. When I see 1111 or 111, I know for me, I am to stop right then and say, Lord, what is it you need from me? Or who is it that I need to lift up in this moment? Okay, so you ready to dive in to this very exciting verse, Revelation 11, 11, through a different lens. Let's read it. But after three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them and they stood on their feet and terror struck those who saw them. Do you all see the messages in this verse? We're going to break it down into four parts. Number one, the breath of life from God. This is God awakening his church and his people. He is saying, I am breathing new life into you. Wake up, pay attention, hear me. Number two, it entered them. When God is allowed into our lives, the Holy Spirit enters, thus allowing and providing the power and the strength we need to do his work. This isn't just God showing up to tell us to get busy. This is God providing the actual conduit into our lives. The third part, they stood on their feet. Do you see the significance of this part? They stood up and to stand up requires purpose, work, determination, a show of strength. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we are being called to stand up right now for the kingdom. We must boot up and suit up. We must armor up, sharpen our spears, tighten our belts and be prepared today. And then number four, terror struck those who saw them. Can you imagine if every believer right now were to stand up for Christ? And I don't just mean proclaiming his name, but rather being so sold out for him that they're willing and ready to get out and be the church. Indeed, those who know they're in opposition to God would tremble in fear if there were multitudes of believers unashamedly proclaiming the gospel. So can't you see Revelation eleven eleven is the awakening code for believers. I absolutely love how God speaks to us in these remarkable ways. Whew. Okay, verse 12. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. This is the follow-up message from verse 11. And no doubt, Those of us who are doing the will of God, we will be with him. We will not be defeated, even if those around us believe that we are doomed. No matter how much the world believes they have won over God, it is never true. We will be victorious with Christ in heaven and someday with him right here on earth. So keep your eyes on that. Verse 13. At that very hour, there was a severe earthquake, a tenth of the city collapsed, 7,000 people were killed, and the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. If we go back to Revelation six twelve, we saw the same thing of an earthquake occurring right after the sixth seal is broken. Here's another mention of an earthquake. It mentions only a tenth of the city collapsing, which points again to God's mercy, not allowing for total annihilation. But we see in this verse 
but there's a shift. The survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. This does not say, though, that these remaining people repented of their sin and turned to God. It does say that through their terror, they acknowledged God. And there are many people today who acknowledge God, yet feel no need to repent and turn their lives over to Him. And if this were the case, if the remaining nine-tenths of the people truly repented and turned to God, then the seventh trumpet would not be needed, right? Because everybody would be saved. But we know from the rest of Revelation that this is simply not the case. And remember, an earthquake is to shake things up in order to get our attention. So verse 14 then says, The second woe is past, and the third woe is coming soon. We've already seen the first woe, which are the locusts, and the second woe in the sixth trumpet, a third of the men killed. And now we're going in to this third woe. So your truth bomb for this section is God is calling us to wake up and stand up. And your call to action is, are you awake to God's call in your life? And how are you responding to his call? And are you truly ready to have new life breathed into your soul for this battle that's at hand? Okay, we're going into the last part, the last few verses, the seventh trumpet. 15, the angel sounded his trumpet. There's a loud voice in heaven which said, The kingdom the world has become, the kingdom of our Lord and his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. The final trump is blasting a mighty message, proudly proclaiming that Jesus Christ is the king and always has been and will be. And this is the proclamation of who God is. And again, prior to the forthcoming information from the seventh trumpet, Here we have another pause as the heavens begin to declare the name of Jesus as they worship and thank him. So verse 16, and the 24 elders who were seated on the thrones fell on their faces and worshiped God. And we've read about these 24 elders doing this before because the true act of worship is showing complete reverence before God. And so here this shows us the prayer posture of worship and the absolute submission to his glory. Verse 17, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. So this shows us the importance to praise and thank him for who he is. And it's also important to note that it says the one who is and who was, but it doesn't say and who is to come because we're in Revelation and we know he's here. Verse 18, the nations were angry and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your people who revere your name, both great and small, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. So the focus in this section is there's penalty and judgment by God. Verse 19, then God's temple in heaven was opened up and within his temple was seen the Ark of the Covenant. And there came flashes of light, rumbling peals of thunder, earthquake, and a severe hailstorm. So this final part, of the praise prayer is perfection and majesty of heaven. And so I called this the fivefold interlude of Revelation eleven fifteen through 19. It's the proclamation, the prayer, the praise, the penalty, and the perfection. Your truth bomb. We as believers have the privilege and the power of prayer. And your call to action, will you intentionally pray in an earnest way for the lost of this world? 
God's continued provision for you, his people, and for a boldness in proclaiming his word. You guys, we're called to be awake and to stand strongly for Christ. Prepare now for the battle ahead. My subject sentence is this. Jesus is calling his church to wake up and stand. Father God, thank you so much for this study. Thank you for the awakening code. Thank you for Revelation 11.11. Please bury that deep in our hearts so that we may stand up and be bold for your kingdom. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Be sure to visit my website, drpaulamcdonald.com. Click on podcast and then exhale Bible discovery for self-study guides and resources to support you with each episode. 